sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the reality of uh, U.S. sanctions and Western sanctions on Russia backfiring and what that's going to mean in a number of ways. Also going to be discussing the latest in Somalia and going to be touching on the need for a new church committee as we see uh, continued increased uh, surveillance and other democratic violations from the intelligence community. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Don DeBar, host of the Weekday World Show on Radio Justice LA. Don, thanks so much for joining us. And thank you, Sean, for having me. Absolutely. And Don, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin uh, recently delivered a speech at the Eastern Economic Forum in uh, Vladivostok, of course, in the far east of Russia, where uh, he said a number of things. But uh, one of the main points he made was that how it really isn't tenable any longer for uh, Russia to continue dealing with Europe in the way that it has specifically around uh, the issue of oil as Europe is following the lead of the United States in uh, sanctioning Russia and really trying to isolate it in a number of ways. And this is, of course, a part of what has triggered a global uh, energy crisis um, as we see these ongoing attempts at isolation. And it's just sort of interesting to see uh, uh, the birds coming home to roost in a certain way, as you know, we were told that the combination of economic sanctions and uh, military force uh, on the ground is going to, you know, achieve a decisive victory uh, for Ukraine. But it just seems that in the time since the invasion, that quite another reality has played out. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's interesting on uh, this program to use the phrase chickens coming home to roost uh, in honor of uh, Malcolm X. Um, <laughs> the. Uh, you know, first of all, an interesting play on words uh, used by uh, Serbia's president in relation to what's coming, uh, referring to uh, the uh, next season that Europe will face, which begins about December 20th and runs until March 20th. We call it winter. He said it's going to be a polar winter. And that's kind of a play on words because it's going to be very cold for people in Europe without oil and once they burn their furniture or whatever else they're planning to do. Uh, but polar also in terms of geopolitics, because we now have a multipolar world again, and the unipole is not able to dictate nor control markets. And uh, we're looking at a situation where finally more than half the world is standing up and saying enough. Um, I don't know what genius, whether they're in the bowels of uh, CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, or at the Pentagon, although I doubt that, uh, or at the basement of the White House uh, next to the uh, programming apparatus for uh, Biden's teleprompter. But I don't know who decided, first of all, when Obama was president, that they should move on both Russia and China at the same time, uh, particularly in 2013-14. Because what they did was make basically a partnership, uh, a marriage of necessity at that point, when each of them saw, along with Iran and a number of others, that the U.S. is coming for them. And so uh, that 
huge strategic error if their goal, which is now apparent, was to try to take down uh, Russian and uh, Chinese governments so that uh, multinational corporations here would have control of the resources in those countries. Um, instead, they uh, created a, a formidable adversary that is now self-sustaining um, and uh, is on alert and, in fact, engaged in military conflict um, uh, on the Western Front and prepared for it on the Eastern Front. Um, and now uh, they're shocked that the Russians would say, well, while you're making war on us, we are not going to make your lives comfortable by selling our raw materials to you at, you know, at, at basically at a discount. Um, instead, we're going to do what you have done. You've tried to use your economic leverage as a strategic weapon against us. Certainly, you've made the first, second, and maybe up to the 60th first strike with each piece of legislation that's been imposed on, on the markets, on the individuals, and the, the nation itself of Russia. Now, we're going to just turn off the spigot. And that's that. And instead, the fantasy that consumes the people in Langley, I guess, or wherever the hell the, the locus of power is here, that they are omnipotent, has them arrogantly saying, not only are we going to buy it, but we're going to set the price. So President Putin uh, at the uh, Eastern Economic Forum uh, more or less set them straight on that. And I think we're going to see... Uh, we're already seeing in some of the uh, capitals in Europe. I mean, I predicted this, you know, before February 24th, really, that if this all played out, you're going to start seeing not just, you know, people marching and protesting in Europe. But by the time this actualizes, you may see some revolutions and perhaps a continent wide Paris commune. And, and, and it's already starting. I mean, you saw what happened in Prague. How, how, who would have thought that you would have people marching in Prague basically saying, leave Russia alone? And that's, that happened. Tens of maybe hundreds of thousands of people were in the streets this past weekend. And you also had demonstrations in Amsterdam and across Europe. And, and this is only the beginning. And it's not cold yet. What if it gets cold? Yeah, and I think that that really is a big part of what's uh, uh, motivating what we're seeing in the streets in Europe is that the people are uh, quite aware that they are in for quite a cold winter on a number of levels due directly to the fact of their own government's uh, uh, involvement in this war that has reflected on them poorly. And it's hard to imagine that, you know, the leadership of these countries will be the ones uh, shivering and clacking teeth when it comes right down to it, but it, it just seems like something that's uh, uh, poised to really come to bear most of all on the rank and file person. And I mean, you know, energy prices actually uh, rose uh, 30% uh, just on Monday when Russia announced that it would temporarily pause uh, flows from the Nord Stream 1 gas pipeline uh, indefinitely. And uh, with the attitude that, you know, uh, basically that, that Russia wouldn't be able to continue to supply these countries with gas amid their ongoing um, efforts to uh, uh, isolate Russia from the world economy and things like that. I mean, about 40 percent of Europe's natural gas actually comes from Russia. And for a while, this was a big part of keeping the other European government's orientation towards Russia in check to some extent because they knew that they uh, depended on 
on that oil. Uh, you know what I mean? And so it's just sort of wild to see how all of these attempts to sort of isolate Russia in a number of ways uh, within the context of the Ukraine war just seem to have uh, failed uh, uh, at this uh, point. And in truth, it, it feels like both the U.S. and their junior partners within Europe are, are really feeling the squeeze from this in a way that they really don't seem to have a solution for. You know what I mean? What's really interesting, I mean, it's, it's past ironic. It's comical is that these are the same people, the elites in Europe, particularly at, at, at the United States, uh, who say that uh, you know their system, unlike Russia, China, and everyone else, is based on rational self-interest. Because look at Annalena uh, Baerbach, for example, who is Germany's foreign minister, who, by the way, for people who think that the Green Party is going to bring some big change, okay, she is the highest level elected Green Party official in the world, okay, and ever. Also, she's the foreign minister of Germany. This is the job that von Ribbentrop had. Okay, we know who he was back in, uh, you know, during the Nazi period in Germany. This is a powerful position. She said last week at a conference on democracy, no less, that listen, I know our people, well, and and also within the context of people in Europe have now like in like forty something years of austerity. I know our people are having a hard time. I know we promised them we would do something about it. We also made promises to Ukraine. Uh, there's going to be an awful lot of suffering this winter and in winters to follow, perhaps for 10 years, but we're standing with Ukraine. You know, that, she made those statements last week. And, and as I said, suddenly tens of thousands of people are marching, also in Germany, by the way, in the streets across, in the capitals in Europe. That it's it's almost as if it's deliberate. It keep, these people cannot be as stupid as they appear. And, and President Putin, you know, he there's an interest that just a very easy, like a facile summary of what he said at Vladivostok uh, was today or yesterday. I don't know what the, when the plenary was. Uh, the key points that are uh, posted at RT, Western dominance is dwindling, and he makes the case for that. The elites are lashing out, and we're seeing that. I mean, they're making war everywhere and, and also making war on the people. We heard Biden's speech last week. Western leaders are detached from their people. <laughs> I'm Elena Baerbach. I, I rest my case. Uh, the West deceives poor nations. Well, how does Blinken get received when he goes to Africa, for example? And how does Lavrov get received? You know, or or how does China's foreign minister get received? Um, Russia is weathering the sanctions, no doubt about that. Look at the ruble on the markets. Asian nations want cooperation. Uh, look at the SCO and a half dozen other organizations. Russia did not start the conflict in Ukraine, and then he, he talks about how incompetent the Western leaders are. And you know, the leader of the free world is Joe Biden. I mean, if you asked him if he had pants on. First, he would look down to look, and by the time he picked his head up, he'd forget. And that guy has a nuclear button in his hand, and he, well, you know, he's the vessel through which this is being spoken, but he, as in terms of legal leadership, is the one that's telling these people in Europe what the, the elites in Europe what to do. And and we know now that you can see it's obvious that they're, they're completely detached from their own people. There is not a single person, in my mind, on the continent of Europe that would say outside of Ukraine, which is fantasy land, it may be Poland, uh, that would say, let's freeze to death this winter and let our economy collapse in order to sustain a war in Ukraine that A, is unwinnable and B, 
if they did win it, would leave a Nazi state armed to the teeth on our border. Not a single person, but the government's pursuing that policy full steam ahead. Yeah, it, it, it's pretty uh, wild how it all comes down. And it, it really feels like both the U.S. and these uh, Western governments have really sort of shot themselves uh, in the foot as it pertains to uh, the proxy war in Ukraine. And in reality, sort of painted themselves into a corner that they're not really clear how to get out of. And I feel like if history is any indicator, uh, despite the fact that these measures don't uh, seem to have much uh, positive impact for the U.S. and the West, I feel like they're. Um, likely to continue, if not uh, intensify, because I'm not sure they really quite know what else to do at this moment besides double down. I mean, actually retreating, uh, uh, I'm sure, is is not even something that's being seriously considered. And I think it just sort of goes to show, you know, how crucial sort of a, a real kind of diplomacy and um, efforts towards peace really are in situations like this. I mean, you know, according to reports, both the U.S. and the EU sort of have actively scuttled a, a real peace talks as it pertains to Russia and Ukraine in a number of ways. And I think that that, along with a number of other things, I mean, puts us in a position to where this uh, uh, conflict, this war in Ukraine could be going on for some time, you know. And what what's so tragic about all of this to me, Don, is about how it was all uh, really avoidable, I think. Like, if we go back to the very beginning of all of this, if the U.S. and the West respected um, the red lines of that Russia put forth in its own national security um, concerns, then we may not even be having this conversation because there may not have even been um, an invasion and a following war to uh, uh, begin with. But see, the U.S. and the West seem to take the position that um, no other country has a right to uh, a national security interest and that they basically have to operate in uh, uh, the whims of uh, the world hegemon, of course, in this case, speaking of the United States. And so it really feels that as U.S. imperialism continues to try desperately to hold on to power, uh, Don, uh, with each act, its grip seems to be slipping more and more. You know, I'll tell you something else, too, when you use the term national security. That's really a, a, a loaded term uh, from a class perspective. And, and you don't even have to use Marx's uh, you know, classification of classes just between the elite and the rest of us. Um, th- what has been pursued and the condition that now exists in the world as a consequence of policy from the United States uh, is has done nothing but destroy the national security of the people of the United States and, and most of the rest of the world, too. The fact that we're at the precipice of war, the fact that we're at war with Russia and pretty close to war with China um, and that we have, uh, you know, it's just an incredible. It, 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 to, if they went back to school and polished them off and, and maybe brain transplants or whatever, these people could qualify for Keystone Cops. Okay, the the gross mismanagement of military intelligence, political, diplomatic, all of the assets that the United States government has at its disposal, the complete mismanagement of that from actualizing a peaceful and prosperous world to one at war collapsing on itself means that the guy with, that's the head of that construct that has his finger on the button while he's at war with Russia, that's a very scary scenario. Where we should be and where we are as a consequence of the policies that they've pursued, shows that they have no regard for national security, that this is a label that's used in order to apply the resources of the government 
to personal agenda items, the pursuit of further wealth and exploitation by a very small group of people who have the levers of power. And until we solve that problem here, our whole planet is at risk, and certainly our lives really are wasted. Yeah, I mean, it definitely seems to uh, to be the case. And I also think that's why you know, that, that I tend to think that there's a kind of shift in opinion, at least amongst the American people around the, the Ukraine war. I mean, I think they still may, you know, maintain some some of that sympathy. C- certainly, they've uh, been deeply inculcated with, uh, uh, you know, this uh, Russophobia that is uh, a large basis of what justifies the war. But I mean, as they continue to see, you know, just endless billions and billions of dollars being sent to Ukraine while their conditions worsen here, I think, you know, uh, uh, almost seems like it creates a potential for what we saw in Prague with, you know, uh, perhaps uh, 100,000 people or more taken to the streets uh, demanding this end. And so it's just such an interesting paradox to see sort of uh, play out in real time as the, the U.S. and the West very well may be setting the stage for almost a kind of mass uh, anti-war movement in this way, because, you know, after all these years of uh, propaganda and indoctrination, I think in a certain sense, people are really seeing the direct connection to this endless uh, spending on war while their sort of interests as human beings go, uh, uh, frankly, unnoticed and, and not prioritized. And while I don't think that these things happen spontaneously, I think it does create a certain opportunity for, you know, movement people and organizers to really give shape and form to that kind of thing. But I think without question, we're in a, a, a dangerous moment in a number of ways, Don, but I also think that there's a, a lot of promise if people are properly organized. They say it's always darkest before the dawn. And, um, you know, there's so many interesting contradictions. I mean, interesting if you can detach yourself from the possibility of extinction. Um, One of them is that, uh, you know, as we see this, you know, rising anti-war movement actualize, the, the last people, unlike what traditionally happens, the last people to come to that party are going to be Democratic voters, They are the most aligned now to U.S. foreign policy, to uh, to the blather that comes out of the uh, Board of Broadcast Governors outlets and the corporate media echo chamber for those, because much of what we hear now in the corporate media actually comes out of U.S. intelligence directly. They just take the contract for the the use of the the material that comes out of uh, the various uh, BBG uh, entities. And this is it's, it's just like a huge turnaround where those who are the most educated are also the most indoctrinated and the most loyal to the system. And the system is, is the problem. And, you know, I guess what we're going to see at some point in time is the contradictions become too intensive for people. They can't. You know, the, the rule is that when the people can no longer be governed in the old ways and the rulers can no longer govern in the old ways, you are in a revolutionary condition. And it's, it seems like we are racing towards that at record speed. It's going to be a matter, basically, of who's going to stand under which banners to decide you know, what direction things go in from there. And uh, it's a very risky, dangerous uh, moment, but also there's great promise in seeing the world change into something more human than what we've seen over the last 30 or 40 years. 
Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Don, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the severe risk of famine inside Somalia. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Abayomi Azikiwe, the editor of the Pan-African Newswire. Abayomi, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. And Abayomi, uh, the United Nations has warned that it is, quote, the last moment of the 11th hour to try to avoid a widespread famine inside the East African country of Somalia, with uh, uh, UN humanitarian chief uh, Martin Griffith saying that conditions inside Somalia now are, are similar to what we saw in 2010 and 2011, where a famine inside Somalia killed a reportedly a quarter of a million people. And this issue is being exacerbated by sort of the broader geopolitical situation. I mean, namely the uh, war in Ukraine and the issues of grain and other things making its way into the country. And so I was hoping you could sort of help us understand, Abayomi, you know, how great is the risk of famine inside Somalia right now? And how does the international situation sort of play into it? Yeah, I think it's very grave. And uh, the reports that uh, we've been receiving uh, over the last uh, few weeks uh, have been borne out. And there are a number of factors involved uh, in this. Uh, We could talk about the uh, Russian special military intervention in Ukraine, uh, the uh, U.S. sanctions, the European Union sanctions against uh, the Russian Federation, and the overall uh, war in Ukraine uh, where our grain ships, shipments have been blocked. And uh, also these sanctions have prevented uh, commercial trade uh, between the Russian Federation and other countries throughout the world. Overall, uh, Russia and Ukraine uh, supply huge amounts of uh, grain uh, to uh, countries uh, such as Egypt, uh, other countries in East Africa, uh, where the famine uh, is threatening right now. And there's also the issue of climate change. Uh, you have failed rains, uh, which have uh, taken place now over five uh, rainy seasons. And a lot of uh, the experts, for example, Guliad uh, Artan, who's director of the Intergovernmental Agency on Development, which is the East African um, Economic Grouping, uh, they have a climate a prediction and application center, and they say time is running out, uh, that uh, an estimated 20 million people are endangered just in Somalia itself, but it's also impacting Ethiopia as well as sections of uh, Kenya as well. So uh, this is a very serious problem. We're looking at uh, approximately 45% of the total population is expected to face food shortages or famine uh, later on this month. Uh, Four million people are going to see their food uh, consumption reduced. Uh, 4.7 million people will face significant food consumption gaps. 
There's 2.1 million people will experience high levels of acute malnutrition and excesses uh, in terms of mortality. There's about 113,000 people expected to experience famine and excess mortality. So uh, it's a very serious problem, and I don't think enough attention has been paid to it, particularly in regard to the United States and the European Union, because uh, their main focus right now uh, is on Ukraine. And they want to, uh, they've already stated it openly, to either uh, remove the Russian government or to weaken uh, Russian uh, Russia's economy and society. Uh, Lloyd Austin, uh, who is the Secretary of Defense, said this, and Joe Biden said it as well, even though they retracted their statements. It was clear uh, that they meant what they said initially. Yeah, and I mean, you kind of touched on my next uh, question, Abayomi, in terms of, well, why is sort of uh, the quote-unquote international community sort of looking away from this serious humanitarian crisis that's happening inside Somalia? I mean, one would think that uh, famine, of all things, would be a pretty uncontroversial thing to want to address. But, I mean, just like you're saying, I mean, uh, the U.S. and the West are so caught up in, you know, just trying to keep their head above water as it pertains to Ukraine as you know, this these uh, uh, both economic and military uh, measures just don't seem to be making the ground that they would want. And so as such, I mean, we have people that and a lot of people that are really on the brink of facing sort of widespread starvation. But the major powers are sort of uh, uh, have their attention directed elsewhere. Uh, uh, and as such, you know, they don't have the same resources, it seems, to really uh, uh, try to alleviate this situation. And so, I mean, in truth, it frankly seems that the lives of these Africans uh, just don't seem to matter that much as U.S. imperialism continues to try to hold its place. You know what I mean? You're right. And uh, it also could be related uh, to the lack of enthusiasm and outright opposition uh, by the African Union uh, member states, uh, the 55 independent countries, well, 54 independent countries in the Western Sahara, uh, which have refused to go along uh, with the United States uh, program uh, for Ukraine and the Russian Federation. Uh, and, of course, millions of people have been displaced in Ukraine. Uh, they've become refugees. Uh, they've gone to countries like Poland and Hungary and even into the Russian Federation itself. Uh, there have been people that have already been admitted to the United States, even though there are tens of thousands of people on the southern border uh, who want admission uh, from countries that have been systematically undermined by the United States, such as Mexico, uh, Guatemala, Honduras, and also countries uh, in South America. Uh, they're putting them on buses uh, in Texas to go to New York City. So uh, it shows where the priorities are at this point. This is a racist uh, foreign policy that's always been carried out uh, by the United States, and that's just not a priority uh, for them to address uh, the situation that's going on in uh, East Africa. Uh, for example, in Sudan, you know, which is also in close proximity uh, to Somalia, there have been uh, rains, uh, there's been flooding, thousands upon thousands of people, as many as 258,000 people have been affected by flood, floods in 15 of Sudan's 18 provinces. Um, we've seen similar situations in other parts of East Africa and indeed around the world. So the climate change issue is imperative right now. And uh, the United States is not concerned, uh, even in the Western Hemisphere, even though there was a bill just recently passed ostensibly to address climate change, 
but uh, they're more concerned about profits over the interests of people, over the interests of the uh, natural environment. So I think that um, people uh, from the various um, mass organizations, uh, non-governmental organizations, uh, humanitarian groupings uh, should continue uh, to sound the alarm about what is going on in Somalia and also in Ethiopia as well, because in Ethiopia, which is a neighbor of Somalia, uh, they have an internal conflict there uh, between the Tigray People's Liberation Front, uh, based in the north, and the central government. There's also a problem with the uh, Oromo Liberation Front in the south uh, against the central government. So even the United Nations assistance uh, that has been delivered uh, to Ethiopia uh, and even the U.N. had to speak out against this uh, last week, has been hijacked uh, by the TPLF rebels. Uh, so this complicates the situation even more. These rebels are being supported uh, tacitly and not so tacitly uh, by the United States, and they are actually, actually effectively uh, worsening the crisis uh, that exists in Ethiopia. I just wanted to mention as well that um, over the weekend uh, in the Netherlands and Rotterdam, um, African leaders had criticized uh, Western leaders at a conference that was held in Rotterdam about uh, their uh, ignoring the impact of climate change in uh, developing countries. And uh, this criticism came from uh, Senegalese president, and who's also head of the African Union, Mackie Saul. And uh, he's, he's the former leader of the African Union and, and current uh, the Congolese uh, president, Felix Chesikete. Uh, says uh, that wealthy countries are responsible for most of the COT admissions and uh, that these countries should have been there. Now, the Western industrial companies are res countries are responsible for the majority of COT, CO2 admissions, uh, yet they did not show up at this conference. And this conference uh, was called the Africa Adaption Summit, and it was held in Rotterdam. And it, it just came two weeks uh, two months, excuse me, uh, prior to the COP27 climate conference that's going to be held in North Africa and Egypt in Sharm el-Sheikh in uh, November. So, uh, you know, they're not concerned, you know, about Africa. They're not concerned about the environment uh, in Africa. And truth be told, they're really not concerned about the environment uh, here in the United States as well. I mean, if you look at the... Um, uh, recent bill that was passed uh, by the U.S. Congress and the Biden administration, uh, there's a lot of um, a series of measures uh, which are inadequate, you know, related to inflation, uh, related to uh, the cost of prescription drugs, and also climate change. There's no real mandates in there uh, that would make an effective uh, difference. The uh, only thing they're talking about is providing incentives uh, for corporations and uh, governments to do certain things. Uh, but this has to be approached on a very comprehensive level because actually uh, the impact of climate change is worldwide. We talk about flooding. Uh, we're talking about uh, forest fires, uh, drought, and all of this is impacting uh, the uh, food chain and uh, also the lack of power and also the lack of uh, livability. For example, in Pakistan, where you have huge uh, flooding that's taking place right now that's displaced uh, hundreds of thousands of people.
Yeah, definitely. And you touched on how uh, these similar trends are sort of impacting things on the ground in other um, uh, countries in the region. You know, you spoke of uh, Sudan and Ethiopia and things like that and these other sort of uh, continental sorts of issues. And I just feel like it's um, very relevant to even be discussing this as, you know, Africa is just so clearly uh, being uh, sort of maybe not primed, but it is clear that Africa will play uh, really— I think the role it has played historically and being pretty decisive and core to a lot of what's happening in global politics, even if that's not necessarily at the top of people's consciousness here in the U.S. and the West. And I'm speaking specifically of the interest of the U.S. and Russia and China on uh, the African continent and different ways, uh, sort of perhaps uh, competing and jockeying for an influence there, um, uh, as it seems that more and more African governments are looking for an alternative kind of uh, relationship with uh, foreign governments than what they've dealt with with the West, uh, frankly, for centuries at this point. And so I think it uh, this famine in, in Somalia or this uh, uh, what, what almost feels like an impending famine in, in Somalia just feels like a, a consequence of uh, a sort of the, 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 the state or the position of how Africa is situated in the global picture at this moment. Uh, but it's clear that without some sort of clear intervention or shift around a number of things happening there that a lot of people are going to continue to suffer both in that country and around the continent. There's no question about it. And uh, we can talk about East Africa because the situation there is so acute now in regard to food deficits, uh, the environmental damage that's being done on a, on a, on a daily basis, and also the internal conflict, uh, which the United States government has uh, an intricate uh, part in fomenting. Uh, but in other parts of the continent as well, for example, in Ghana and West Africa right now, uh, they're seriously considering uh, the uh, taking out another loan uh, from the International Monetary Fund. And the, and the government there has come under tremendous uh, criticism uh, in regard uh, to uh, the IMF because they've seen in the past uh, the impact of the International Monetary Fund in gutting uh, government services and um, trimming education to the point where it's uh, almost ineffective. And uh, the issues like environmental quality, for example, women's affairs, uh, health care, all that is impacted uh, through the whole IMF and World Bank uh, process of conditionalities. Uh, so we're looking at the same situation in the Horn of Africa, uh, Sudan, as we know, uh, both South and North Sudan has been experiencing uh, environmental uh, problems over the last several months. In Ethiopia, uh, we've seen the internal conflict and its impact on food deficits. And, of course, in Somalia, there's an internal conflict there as well. Uh, at the same time, uh, the U.S. is not paying adequate attention uh, to the starvation and the food deficits that exist there. So I think it's up to ordinary people, so to speak, uh, to raise these issues with the Biden administration and with the European Union to get some type of effective results. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Abayomi, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By 
any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the need to rein in uh, the reach of intelligence agencies. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Jeremy Kuzmarov, managing editor of Covert Action magazine and the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including The Russians Are Coming Again with John Marciano and Obama's Unending Wars. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Jeremy, I feel like in uh, a number of ways, we're really living in a time of unprecedented uh, uh, surveillance, uh, particularly when we look at the uh, operations of the different intelligence agencies uh, inside the United States. And, you know, uh, once upon a time, uh, there was a church committee that was organized here in the U.S. to sort of do just that, to really sort of reveal and evaluate uh, how these agencies were really moving and what that meant for the broader public. And in a recent piece uh, to uh, Covert Action magazine, uh, you published a piece entitled, We Need a New Church Committee to Curb Massive Intelligence Agency Criminality Ranging from Illegal Surveillance to Torture and Assassination. And so to begin, Jeremy, I was hoping you could sort of explain just what was the uh, sort of purpose and substance of the original church committee and why do you feel like we need another one today? Sure. Well, the church committee uh, was set up by uh, Senator Frank Church, who is a Democrat from Idaho, uh, and he was um, he was on the Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, his hero was William Bora, who was an isolationist senator in the 1920s and had opposed U.S. imperialism in Central America in the 1920s. And the church committee basically, uh, you know, investigated the CIA and exposed massive abuses of power by the CIA and FBI under the, you know, Quenel Pro was a counterintelligence uh, operation led by the FBI to infiltrate left-wing groups uh, to spy on them and break them up uh, and planted like a genre provocateur to carry out criminal acts that could be blamed on those, you know, dissident groups to discredit them. And then the CIA was involved in, you know, major abuses like things like drug testing, you know, surveillance, you know, illegal coups and assassination. Uh, he even brought out evidence that uh, they had hired the mafia and worked with the mafia, like Johnny Rosselli and Santo Traficante, uh, San Giancana, to assassinate or try and assassinate Fidel Castro. And there were other assassinations like Patrice Lumumba, in uh, Congo, and Rafael Trujillo in Dominican Republic, and Go Dinh Diem uh, in South Vietnam that the uh, Eisenhower and Kennedy administrations were behind. So these were huge abuses. Uh, I think the public had been outraged by exposures about the Vietnam War, you know, the Pentagon Papers, and there had been exposures about the Phoenix program in Vietnam, which was basically a torture and assassination program the CIA had been running uh, against the so-called Viet Cong. Uh, so maybe the, the climate was uh, was right for a committee like this to really uh, expose the CIA uh, and then to push for reforms, you know, more congressional oversight and attempts to kind of rein in these uh, abuses. And unfortunately, what happened in the subsequent decades, you know, uh, because of the church committee, uh, a Senate uh, intelligence uh, committee was set up and actually Joe Biden served on it. 
that was to function as like an oversight committee uh, to try and rein in these abuses. But it basically was staffed with uh, pro-CIA personnel, uh, starting with like Daniel Patrick Moynihan and Barry Goldwater, I think, were the initial chairs, and both were very, very friendly to the CIA. And, and Biden was also quite friendly to the CIA throughout his career. So the, com- the Senate committee that was supposed to provide oversight of the CIA was staffed with all these like pro-CIA people. So and Biden admitted that they barely did anything to try and you know curb its powers. Uh, you know, especially in the 80s, like in the late 70s, there were some efforts to rein it in. Like there was amendments passed to block CIA operation in Angola which was uh, turning into another Vietnam. And the Carter administration cut the CIA's budget considerably. But then by the 80s, the CIA was kind of running wild in Nicaragua and Central America. And then Clinton actually increased the CIA's budget. Uh, and the CIA, his CIA director, George Tenet, said, like, brag, like our old risk-taking uh, spirit is coming back. And then, you know, in the 2000s, you had the USA Patriot Act, which expanded surveillance, and the War on Terror basically, again, gave free reign to the CIA, which carried out, you know, torture, and then there the drone assassinations uh, run by the CIA. So I argue in my article, I mean, we're seeing kind of repeat of the abuses of the you know, early Cold War era that led to the Church Committee, uh, and we have a, a similar need now for... Uh, a new committee to expose the extent of those abuses, including interference in U.S. domestic politics. I mean, the CIA may have been behind the Russiagate scandal. A fake, fake it was like a fake political scandal. Uh, you know, whatever you think of, of Donald Trump, he was not a Manchurian candidate, as they suggested. And, you know, they were trying to connect him to Russia and a fake scandal and claim he was a pawn of Vladimir Putin. There had been no evidence of this. And this is kind of ratcheted up uh, uh, animus towards Russia and the country, and could be argued was kind of like a silent coup uh, against Trump. So this is the kind of abuse we've seen, and we don't know the extent to which the CIA has infiltrated the, the mass media. Uh, the, the original Church Committee exposed massive uh, CIA efforts to infiltrate and control the media uh, through an Operation Mockingbird, and they uh, paid many journalists to promote you know, pro-CIA uh, or pro-U.S. Uh, articles in the media that distorted what was going on in many foreign countries. So uh, this seems to be occurring on an even higher level uh, today. Uh, so we, we need a new church committee so the public is aware of how they've been manipulated and how the CIA has uh, betrayed democracy. And these um, and, you know, CIA and other agencies like it have to be reined in so we could reestablish our democracy. Yeah. And, you know, we often talk on the show about how these uh, these narratives like the Russiagate myth that you're detailing, Jeremy, and how that really has a deleterious effect on uh, uh, the politics of a country in, in a number of ways that may not seem immediate at the time. But I mean, in that specific case, I feel like we're seeing uh, uh, the ripple effects play out even today. And I also wanted to touch on because, I mean, you noted uh, the COINTELPRO program, which at this point is, I think, Think infamous and well known, and I think it speaks to the issue of uh, of the role that agencies like the CIA play in uh, attempting to crush uh, political dissent, and particularly around talking about the Cold War era, around this issue of uh, uh, McCarthyism and how uh, it feels like we're almost living through an era of a new McCarthyism that it seems is directly connected to this uh, broader RussiaGate piece. You know what I mean? 
Absolutely, yeah. And it's created a toxic and poisonous political culture, just like in the original McCarthy era. And that's why we need a church committee uh, uh, to expose who is behind this and how the public has been manipulated. And they've been manipulated yeah, into supporting a uh, Cold War, possibly even a hot war with Russia that could lead to a nuclear war. They've been manipulated into uh, sending billions of dollars of economic and military aid to one of the most corrupt governments in the world in Ukraine that is uh, running death squads and carrying out car bombing attacks and terrorism uh, and uh, how they've, uh, you know, and how they've been manipulated into turning on their fellow Americans who question uh, government policies, who are labeled as Putin lovers or Putin apologists or Assad lovers. Uh, and that's, again, similar to the McCarthy era, where anybody who questioned U.S. policies in the Cold War, the huge military budgets and the thrust towards war and confrontation with Russia were labeled as, as communists and traitors to the United States, which they were not. And you had many abuse in the McCarthy era, like the Hollywood, you know, the imprisonment of Hollywood film directors, uh, just one well-known example. And that kind of thing seems to be happening again today with censorship on the Internet uh, and the marginalization of good good people. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's poisoned our culture. It's warped our foreign policy. We, uh, the NDA budget the Senate has just passed has, uh, is a, you know, nearly a trillion dollars on military weapons and it's justified as you know necessary to confront Russia and to confront China. And really, both of those countries have promoted cooperation with the United States for many years in, in different ways. And we have many, many domestic ills that are probably even worse in the Cold War. You know, decaying infrastructure, problems in our school system, you know, major crisis in public education, and yet we're spending huge amount of money on the military. And it's because they manipulated the, the political culture. So this is you know terrible for for America, and the the sinister forces behind this should be exposed. And we need that to rejuvenate our society and develop a, a more humane foreign policy. And I think that's what you know Church, Frank Church was. I think a great figure in American history who uh, valued the democracy and wanted to establish a more sensible foreign policy after the debacle of Vietnam. Yeah, and you're speaking to something that I think is very purposefully kept from sort of taking root in the popular consciousness of the United States, Jeremy. And that's sort of the real material consequences of this surveillance and of this uh, belligerent uh, foreign policy that basically has a consent manufactured for it in a number of ways uh, uh, in this country, Uh, which actually leads me to uh, a point about the role of media in all of this. Because I feel like the way that consciousness is shaped, it has so much to do with why the mental terrain is in the United States, what it is today to where uh, people in this country are uh, really more oftentimes than not being propagandized while they think that they're being informed. You know what I mean? So what do you see as the role uh, of journalism in media sort of within this uh, uh, broader project of really, frankly, sort of skewing reality so that, you know, uh, those and power can sort of carry through uh, what it is they will. Yeah, and I think the CIA during the Cold War perfected techniques of psychological warfare, and it was applied in foreign nations, but it was applied mostly against American citizens, and that is the ability to condition 
the American public to think certain way uh, that you know supports the maintenance of the political economic status quo, which is beneficial to the you know top one percent or maybe top five to ten percent of the population. And they've really taken it to high art form. And you know, we've seen that in the Ukraine war, where somehow the public is believes that you know Zelensky is this kind of hero, Winston Churchill, Mother Teresa type figure. When reports are coming out that he's banned uh, 11 opposition parties, that his government is running assassination squads, and it was even reported in the New York Times, though favorably, uh, that they're running these commando units who are sneaking behind Russian lines and planting car bombs and carrying out terrorist activity, including uh, likely the bomb that killed uh, Ms. Dugina, the daughter of uh, a noted uh, Russian intellectual. So, uh, you know, uh, and, and they just also block, uh, passed laws against uh, labor rights and, and collective bargaining rights of the Ukrainian people. So, and, and Zelensky was citing the Pandora Papers for corruption and is tied to a, a corrupt warlord who's now uh, under indictment in the United States for massive Ponzi scheme, Ihor Kolomoisky. So it's really an incredible achievement that the majority of the American public, you know, or many have these Ukrainian flags and uh, there was no dissent in the Congress when Biden introduced these huge uh, economic aid bills to Ukraine, this incredibly corrupt and brutal government that the public is led to believe is a saintly government uh, fighting the evil Russians. So that exemplifies the success of, of psychological warfare and the ability to use the media to basically condition and indoctrinate the public to support public policies that are against their own interests and to support a view of, the, of, a, of a conflict that has nothing to do with reality. Yeah, and even even in uh, sort of considering that, Jeremy, I mean, you also touch on the fact in your piece about how while these sorts of committees are capable of revealing a lot, they also have their limitations. So what were some of the limitations you think we saw with uh, both the original church committee and how do you think we should be perhaps using that to frame how something like that could look today? Well, I think a limitation is that the, the CIA was so powerful that they could manipulate uh, the church committee. They they could ensure the exposure of some, uh, you know, of quite a lot, which most of it had already come out by that time, had been revealed by the media. I mean, I think the media was was uh, you know a little more uh, searching in that era. There was a bit of openness, and there were some really good journalists uh, who had written about it. Like there was a book uh, uh, published uh, late six. You know the secret government, and there were some whistleblowers who come out like Philip Ag. So, uh, as explosive as a lot of those revelations were, uh, most were known already, uh, including things like with the mafia. Although some things were new, uh, but uh, so I think the CIA, you know, was willing to basically concede certain things, but they kept hidden other secrets, and they focused very heavily on putting like you know pro CIA congressmen to basically limit the damage. And then especially, I think their focus was going forward that uh, when these new oversight bodies were established, uh, that they had their own people you know, in the Congress on those bodies so that uh, the CIA wouldn't be so badly damaged. And then they worked very hard, yeah, I think, to cultivate people in Congress who passed legislation like this Identities Protection Act uh, that uh, basically criminalized ex- uh, exposing you know, CIA secrets, and it made it a crime if you exposed uh, a CIA agent. 
and they passed other laws like that they were basically designed to protect the agency from further scrutiny you know this was in the 80s so we can expect if this church committee would, uh, if a new church committee was established uh, which will take a lot of popular pressure uh, because the the entire you know liberal movement has been co-opted at this point uh, and you don't see you know people basically agitating against the intelligence agencies like you did back in the, in the 60s and 70s. But if the church committee was established, yeah, the CIA and the intelligence agencies are so powerful that they would probably find ways to co-opt it and kind of limit the damage after. You know, any reforms that come in place, they would try and, and manipulate. But that doesn't, again, diminish the importance of trying to establish this committee to try and get the facts out there before the American public and to build momentum for major reform uh, of the intelligence agencies and the, and the way the government operates. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, when when we begin to talk about things like this, Jeremy, I mean, it, it typically isn't very long before, you know, one gets accused of uh, being a conspiracist and things like that. But I mean, the fact of the reality is we're talking about an institution that is not really beholden uh, to any kind of a democratic uh, process. Much of what it does uh, uh, operates behind closed doors and really without the knowledge of uh, the overwhelming majority of people in this country. And on top of all of that, it it makes sure to put sympathetic uh, people to the institution and places of power and also creating laws uh, basically to give itself a, a level of impunity. And so just on paper, if one looks at that, I mean, it almost sounds like what the U.S. often accuses uh, other governments of actually doing. Uh, but in truth, and as I think has been documented throughout history, I mean, we see how uh, agencies like the CIA operate and how, in truth, they really undermine uh, the democratic ideals that this uh, society claims to be set upon. And as such, I think not only do we have to ask serious questions about how it operates and talk about the reality of its history, but also, I think, have a a kind of real clarity around whether uh, an institution like this uh, should even exist as it does. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, you know, I think Harry Truman, who created the CIA, was horrified uh, by what it became. And, you know, uh, originally it was, I mean, it was supposed to be set up to provide good intelligence to the executive branch and you know, the other presidents so they could uh, develop good, you know, good foreign policies, have good knowledge uh, of uh, countries around the world and, and potential rivals uh, or you know, other powers like Russia and China. Uh, but instead, you know, uh, the, a lot of the intelligence from the beginning became very politicized and the agency uh, expanded into this kind of monster that Truman, I think, you know, before he died said, he was horrified, and he would never have set up the CIA if he knew what it became. So, uh, yeah, there's a fine line. I mean, every country does need intelligence agency, and they need to uh, have uh, you know good information uh, so they're not taken advantage of by other countries, and their security is protected. But there's a fine line uh, that I think has been crossed a long time ago where it evolves into a uh, repressive instrument uh, of kind of uh, totalitarian state where yeah, they're trying to manipulate the public, where they're carrying out surveillance, where they're targeting any dissident uh, groups within the United States, where they're promoting. We don't know the extent to which they've promoted political candidates in, in U.S. elections very covertly, uh, as well as manipulating you know, elections in 
many other countries, uh, which is just abuse of, of, of international law uh, and UN Charter, you know, mandating the sovereignty of countries. So, yeah, we've just seen just these massive abuses both in foreign policy and it seeped back into domestic life, and they've been able to manipulate and, and derail the democratic development in the United States. So it's really urgent for anybody who supports democracy uh, to support uh, something like a church committee that could first expose what they're doing so the public is more aware, and then we can move forward with, with ideas about how to curb the power of this monster. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Jeremy, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, September 7th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call, labor by any means necessary, to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you because at that time, you'll be able to give us a ring at 202-521-1320. That's 2 Zero two five two one one three two zero. Our operators are standing by. You can also check out the show at sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave.digital. You can also check us out on social media, Facebook and twitter.com slash B-A-M necessary. And as always, we are broadcasting live from Rumble. That's rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M necessary. But wherever you are in this world, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Tunde Asazwa, the coordinator of the U.S. Out of Africa Network, a project of the Black Alliance for Peace, Joe Mitchell, a queer Muslim cultural worker with In Defense of Black Lives Atlanta and the Party for Socialism and Liberation, and Chell, an organizer with In-State ATL, a black queer feminist organization focusing on mutual aid and political education. Tunde, Joe, Chell, thank you all so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. And I know that uh, you all were recently a part of uh, a a delegation that went to uh, Cuba, uh, basically as a a contingent or delegation, if you will, of black organizers from across the uh, U.S. South, uh, meeting with black Cuban organizers, doctors, artists, and things like that. And uh, I think, among other things, to see how uh, the criminal unilateral U.S. blockade uh, against Cuba Cuba uh, impacts of black folks there on the ground. And uh, Tunde, I'll uh, start with you. I'm really curious, like, what were some of the things that you all were able to do? What kind of conversations were you able to have? What did you see? Just sort of wondering what your experience was like as a black organizer in the U.S. in some of uh, Cuba's black communities. 
Absolutely. Um, you know, it was a very interesting time to be on the island. Um, you know, we went uh, as uh, kind of like a coalition of different groups or this delegation that was made up of groups from, you know, MC Atlanta, with that Joe's a part of, and the Fence of Black Lives that, that Joe is a part of. I'm, I'm with Community Movement Builders and the Black Lives for Peace. The Atlanta chapter had a few representatives also on the delegation and you know, we were really able to see, you know, kind of the, the economic situation in Cuba's dire. You know, a lot of Cubans compare it to the special period which hit the island in the 1990s following the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. And so what you mentioned, right, that U.S. blockade, as well as the COVID pandemic, you know, and, and some other, you know, factors have combined to really create a disastrous context for the island. Um, but, you know, despite this, you know, the organizers that we met with and, and other other black Cubans, you know, keep organizing so diligently. And so, you know, for this delegation, right, unlike some of the um, other brigades that, you know, are very popular and do a lot of great work, like, you know, the May Day Brigade and the Vence Ramos Brigade, a lot of our time was spent on the streets and in the neighborhoods, really immersed in black Cuban communities, right? And so we you know, uh, had a number of, uh, um, you know, meetings and discussions with, with different groups. Um, the main one that we were uh, conversing with is called the Red Barrial Afro-Descendiente, which roughly translates to the neighborhood or the network, rather, of Afro-descendant uh, 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 neighborhoods, right? Um, so it, it's kind of like a, a network of, I think, over 140 uh, different Afro-descendant or Black organizations in Cuba that are doing all sorts of different type of, uh, types of work, you know, mutual aid work, uh, um, you know, work that supports marginalized communities, you know, um, Black, queer, uh, 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 poor, disabled, and, and um, uh, uh, other marginalized communities on the island and, you know, really creating projects to support, uh, um, you know, th that those efforts. And so, you know, the Red Barrial was really kind of our host uh, um, uh, what, the entire time that we were there. Um, we also, you know, met with a number of the member organizations of the Red Barrio. So, for example, there's an organization called Afro Diverso that, that works with a lot of, um, you know, uh, LGBTQIA uh, uh, folks and, and, and groups on, uh, on the island, in, in Havana in particular. Um, and so, you know, we were able to meet with them. We spoke about um, you know, different challenges affecting, um, I guess, uh, those marginalized communities and, and, you know, learned about things like the new family code that is, um, you know, soon to be, uh, have like this final uh, round of, of deliberation, I guess, in, in, the, in the National Assembly, assembly and, and in, you know, Cuban neighborhoods. So we, we had a number of different discussions. We also attended various cultural presentations. We uh, visited different um, museums like uh, the, the, uh, uh, the, I guess, the Casa de Americas and the Casa de Africa, which uh, uh, both of those kind of focus on, um, you know, uh, Cuban uh, uh, history as it relates to African people or, you know, more generally. Um, we were also able to visit Matanzas and specifically La Marina and, and Matanzas, Matanzas being a province in Cuba and the Marina being like a, uh, uh, specifically a black neighborhood that's kind of the center of uh, of like a lot of African history, 
right? Uh, in, in Cuba, it, it has a lot of, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, significance as, as it relates to the slave trade and, and you know, um, I, I guess uh, the, the development of like a sugar uh, or, or plantation economy in Cuba. And so we learned a lot about those cultural practices and then also the spiritual or religious context on the island. And so we, we were able to do so much and, and learn so much about, you know, the black Cuban uh, um, uh, experience uh, just in our, in our short time, our 10 days on the island. And, and we learned just really about how the blockade is, uh, uh, you know, really affects every aspect of Cuban life, right? It's, you know, that decades-long acts of warfare against Cuba, and it, it really um, is a form of genocide, according to the Geneva Convention, right? And so um, we, we just learned about how, uh, um, you know, ending the imperialist blockade should be a top priority for us and, and all organizers that claim the struggle for black liberation, right? Um, and so, you know, it was, it was so impactful, and I, I think that we gained a lot from it in terms of just learning about, you know, different organizing tactics, uh, whether it's popular education or mutual aid and, um, you know, just really building with, with these organizers. Definitely. Joe, uh, sort of a same question to you and what it was like sort of experiencing Cuba in that way and how it seemed uh, from your viewpoint. Yes, I can definitely say that. I just want to say thank you so much for having us on. It's an honor being on here. I definitely learned a lot about um, what it means to be a community organizer in Cuba, although it's a different context than what we have in the United States. I learned a lot about um, a clear understanding of how we need to fight to get to a socialist state. Um, it definitely takes leaders in the communities, like the ones we met, um, Kimbo, Marita, that dare to change the aspects of society that they will no longer accept as a status quo. And you need active engagement with the communities that are most oppressed. Um, they focus a lot on making sure that they were meeting the um, essential needs of the community. They did a lot of work on mapping the area, doing cartography, understanding who's in the neighborhoods, what religions they participated in, how much, how many schools are in the areas. They also focus a lot on um, diagnoses, understanding like what needs to change in the communities, depending on surveys. So this really inspired me and um, the work that I'm doing here in Atlanta um, to understand what I need to do here. Yeah. And uh, Chell, I'm also curious, I mean, how you sort of um, saw the kind of organizing work on the ground in some of Cuba's black communities and uh, uh, how it perhaps made you think about, you know, some of the work that we do here in the U.S. Although, of course, I think it's true, as someone mentioned earlier, I mean, it's definitely under a different context uh, in a number of fundamental ways. But uh, just wondering how you were sort of uh, analyzing it at this point. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think for me, like coming from an organization that focuses heavily on political education, I felt pretty validated and also ex- like it expanded my understanding of like where we need to go with political education in the States. So for Afro-Cubans, especially a part of the RBA, the majority of their work is centered around popular education. So making sure that like every person that they touch has the resources that they need to understand like how to move forward um, within their own social context. So for example, with like, Healthcare. Uh, we met with some folks who were pretty involved with 
expanding healthcare in Cuba, um, especially around the pandemic and for queer folks. Um, because of the blockade, there's a lot of restrictions on the work that they can do within healthcare. So when the pandemic started, they had developed five vaccines but couldn't um, distribute them as quickly as they could have because of um, a supply shortage and syringes. Um, but even throughout that, you know, like a lot of their work focused on using popular education to tell folks about how to navigate um, the world throughout this pandemic, um, as well as like focusing on popular education around a lot of other healthcare issues um, around like sexual education um, and whatnot. And so I think just like being there and seeing how that's been their focus and every organizer part of RBA is also considered a teacher really showcased the, the importance of uh, political education here. Um, I think for the difference in context right now is, uh, you know, we live in different political contexts with RBA. They're able to work with their government in order to expand their programs in order to reach more people across the Island here. We're in a constant battle against our state. Um, it feels sometimes it feels like we take three steps forward, they push us five steps back. But I think that being the essence of their work and just continuing to educate people on their issues and also like allowing them to experience that education from their own lived experiences is what's really important. Um, and so, like, as I continue my work here in the States with my group and with the groups that we went with and our delegation, um, I'm really just excited to, like, bring some of those popular education materials back and use that to inform my work and how we can better connect with people who are marginalized here. Um, whether it's, like, social marginalization, marginalization from, like, directly from the state. But yeah, it's going to take a little bit of fine tuning because, again, we live in different social contexts. But I don't know. I believe we can win. Yeah, for sure. And I definitely believe that as well. And I have a follow up, Chell, because we talk all the time here on by any means necessary about the, the crucial importance of a, a popular education and of political education, precisely because a part of our context here in the United States is that we're some of the most uh, profoundly uh, propagandized people on Earth by merit uh, of being inside uh, the chief imperial superpower. You know what I mean? And so what do you think that's going Going to mean in terms of how we uh, uh, sort of tailor our uh, uh, popular education, if you will. Now, I don't expect you to sort of, uh, you know, spit a whole curriculum off the top of your head or anything, but just in terms of how we orient ourselves, even to the idea of uh, political education or popular education um, here in the U.S., particularly with conditions being what they are for so many of poor, working and oppressed people. It's just, you know, uh, what do you think just to sort of the uh, uh, strategies or even tactics that perhaps we should be uh, thinking about as we, you know, uh, seek to bring in some of these lessons from uh, from abroad? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I wish I could spit off a curriculum because that's definitely <laughs> political <laughs> education bag. Uh, but I mean, I feel like the first step is decentering our like American experiences mm. uh, simply because like the propaganda is so, so strong here that it's easy to be swept up in like our own individualized struggles um, and not think about what we can pull from. Uh, different political contexts from different revolutionary struggles um, outside of the states. Um, 
So I've been kind of saying, like, since I've come back, that Cuba lives on the other side of my imagination. Um, And I say that because a lot of my political education work involves, like, expanding people's ideas of, like, what's possible, you know? And I feel like it's really hard to do that sometimes when, like, we're taught over and over again that, like, this is the way that we need to live you know, what the systems that we have in place are here because they're the best way, et cetera, et cetera. So even in conversations around abolition, you know, people are often asking, like, what comes next after prisons? Um, And so part of that work is saying, like, well, what do you think? And I think now, like, leaving and going to Cuba and coming back, like, if the blockade were to end, then I would imagine that would open up a lot of educational resources and also just the ability to see that, like, Cuba's living on the other side of our imagination. Like, they're doing the work. They're continuing to improve um, social conditions. And so I think our job as organizers right now is to, like, take what we're learning in Cuba and be able to show people like, Hey, like they have a government that actually provides and meets their basic needs. You know, the way that they conceptualize revolution is different there. And so I think by like being, being able to bring that context from Cuba here and showing people like there's a whole nother world <laughs> in which like, we don't have to like rely on our government to provide us resources or I don't say that where we don't have to, like, rely on this disinformation from our government. Like, we can work in conjunction, um, or there is another world where people are doing that. And so I think part of the work is, like, expanding our imaginations, but also recognizing that, like, it's going, the fight is going to be different here. Uh, so, yeah, I fully intend to bring that into my work. Um, I think it'll make my job as like a teacher, a political educator, a little bit easier now that there's like real life examples of like what revolutionary struggle can lead to. But yeah, I'm curious if like anyone else in my delegation has thoughts on that too, but I hope that answered your question. Yeah, absolutely. And I love when you said that Cuba lives uh, on the other side of our imagination. I mean, I think that's uh, uh, very well put. And, uh, you know, Joe, that that makes me think about the sort of uh, trying to think of the right word here. Just this uh, incredible blunting is one way to put it. The blunting of the political imagination that can happen and so often does happen um, within this capitalist system. So let's take, say, the issue of uh, climate change. If we look toward these uh, major corporate owned uh, uh, media platforms, you know, there are often times when uh, they may sort of accurately describe the scope and depth of the problem, but never really offer uh, uh, solutions. And then we also don't see solutions on this issue coming from uh, uh, our government as well. And so the impression that one is left with is that there's nothing that can be done. And all we can really do is sit around and, and wait for the, the world to burn up. And so there's this sort of a despair that people can be inclined to uh, uh, sort of find themselves in because of this kind of messaging. But see, you know, uh, uh, when talking about QB on the other side of the imagination, you're talking about a country that has had its revolution and in the decades since has been really been trying to operate within that revolutionary process as best they can while um, uh, uh, under attack from uh, uh, the world's most powerful nations. You know what I mean? And so because of that very propaganda that uh, Chell was just speaking to, it seems to me that that is a big part of the value of actually going to countries like Cuba and so many others that we can name. 
And one thing that I know uh, uh, about Cuba, having been there myself a few years ago, and I know there are other countries like this, is that people actually do want um, Americans to come to the country so they can see the reality of things for themselves because they know about the propaganda. But it just seems, Joe, that the kind of, uh, you know, face to face experience and work that you all were, were able to do seems like uh, the best antidote, really, to breaking through uh, the wall of lies uh, built up by U.S. imperialism. You know what I mean? Yes, yes, I completely agree. Um, we do. We all know that. Well, we know that the U.S. Um, Congress alone spends over two million a year to promote anti-Cuban propaganda um, and has employed hundreds of people over the decades for this goal. Um, and then we also have descendants of the white and rich Cubans who had to escape Cuba because um, they didn't want to um, give over their wealth to the poor of the country. And this is why it's so important to combat um, US, the U.S. propaganda machine with political med- education especially on the conditions of black people in Cuba. Um, Shell talked a little bit about this, how the conditions in Cuba are different um, for black people. Um, for instance, racism is not institutionally supported in Cuba. There's no border disenfranchisement. There's no laws that target black people like in the U.S. And after the revolution, racial discrimination was made legal. They desegregated society. Um, however, the vestiges of racism and homophobia still exist. Um, like our host said, Cuba only has only had 64 years of revolution, but 400 years of colonization and slavery. So these things don't go away just because there is a socialist revolution. And that's why um, it's important to visit these organizations like the Red Barrial, Afro Descendants, and Afro-diversity who are working at a grassroots level to uproot and eradicate racism and also um, the government organizations that we visited as well. Um, and it is actually the over 60-year blockade that is preventing um, the progress of um, the eradication of racism and homophobia in, this, in Cuba. We see that resources have to be um, um, uh, resources have to be um, focused specifically on the survival, the um, the main survival of the nation, um, access to food, health care, housing. And so there's not enough resources to go to these programs. And so that's why it's even more important for us to um, fight against the blockade here in the United States so that um, we can have ac- accurate information coming from the Cuban people and not um, all of this propaganda that we're getting bombarded with from the U.S. government. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Tunde Asazua, Joe Mitchell, and Chell talking about uh, taking part in a uh, delegation of young black organizers across the U.S. to uh, black communities inside Cuba. And uh, Tunde, I was thinking just in listening to you all's uh, uh, open comments. And I feel like it's sort of a real reminder, like an actual flesh and blood, real time sort of reminder about, you know, the importance of anti-imperialism within black politics, because you all saw with your own eyes, you know, the ravages of um, uh, uh, imperialism and its relentless assault on uh, uh, Cuba and certainly on its black communities, but it's also evident, as I'm sure you all saw, in uh, the country in general. And see, this is a key piece that I think is currently missing in popular black politics within the United States, you know, for a whole lot of reasons. But um, I I think it's sort of an example of how not only we see how uh, imperialism impacts uh, black folks abroad, but how it also impacts us right here inside the United States as well. And so I think through that process and through that analysis, we sort of see how we're tied on a number of levels. Uh, We're tied by a common heritage, uh, tied by the fact that we're a and exploited under these similar systems and, and all those are sorts of things that really color or at least it should indelibly color um, the kind of work that they do. And so in terms of uh, uh, ideologically how we should be seeing this kind of politic and how to apply it to our particular situation uh, here in the U.S., how do you sort of see how uh, the experience in Cuba can can play into that Tunde? Absolutely. I think, you know, uh, if, if we're thinking about anti-imperialist politics uh, for, for any uh, anyone who is wanting to, to engage in that type of struggle, you know, Cuba has to be a top priority for, for, for those folks, those organizers, those activists, uh, people in general who are interested in, you know, Black or African liberation, right? Um, one thing we were reminded of while on the trip was that, you know, the Cuban revolution is you know, one of or among the history of Pan-African or African revolts, right? And that, you know, the blockade directly impacts the massive progress that Black Cubans have made, right? Even when we were there, we met a number of, you know, veterans of of struggles uh, 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 on the continent for for liberation, for uh, independence, or, or for the end of colonialism, right? Folks who participated in, you know, struggles in places like Angola, and, um, you know, and, and, and Mozambique and the Congo, right? And those folks, you know, wore that with pride, right? Like when, you know, when you met them, that was one of the first things they told you, right? And so I think when we, t- when we talk about, uh, um, you know, the blockade and how, how that relates to our struggles here, like we, we you know, we're making the, the connection that, you know, as black people in the U.S., you know, it's, it's basically like we, we're living under a blockade here, right? Like our access to healthcare, to food, to, to housing, it is 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 limited due to you know the policies of you know the capitalist state that we live under, right? And and I think we we were able to make those connections because when we were in the black communities in Cuba, we saw so many uh, uh, similarities, and you know the neighborhoods that we were walking through looked so similar to neighborhoods like right here where we live in in the U.S., right? And I think you know it, it just made it that much more important that we oppose this U.S. 
uh, economic blockade against Cuba, which is basically, which is the longest embargo in, in modern history that really affects every aspect of life on that Caribbean island, right? It, it, you know, we were able to see how, you know, the blockade is, is damaging Cuba's economy on a, you know, very personal level, right? And, and we, we, we heard about how it hinders the development uh, the economic development on the uh, on the island and how it isolates the country from the global community, right? And and so you know we, we were in Matanzas for a little while, and Matanzas is is a site where they had you know a fire recently that killed you know 16 people, including 14 firefighters, and it injured something like 40 so 40 or so people and destroyed four of uh, of eight uh, a large tanks at, at a fuel base in the Matanzas province, right? And so, you know, th- that was, that take, takes place in the context of kind of like a power shortage on the island, or there's, there are extensive power out- outages because of, you know, lack of uh, a new equipment and technology due to the blockade, right? And it that prevents, you know, proper maintenance of, of Cuba's energy grid, right? And so we experienced a number of blackouts while we were there, you know, the, the effect that we, uh, understand to affect all provinces on the island, including Havana. Uh, but, you know, when we were in Matanzas, we saw it very closely, right? And so, you know, we, we, we see that, you know, the blockade affects things like energy, if it affects food, healthcare, housing, all these different aspects of Cuban life. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, it really speaks to, you know, kind of what we face here in terms of, you know, lack of access to these basic needs. And so, you know, when we talk about anti-imperialist struggle, we, we, we're saying that, you know, it, it's, it's important for, for everyone to see, like all, all Black or African folks to, to understand, you know, the Cuban struggle is part of that broader African struggle for liberation. And, and maybe they're a little bit more, uh, they're on a, in a, for a different stage of their struggle because they've had a revolution. And, you know, in some ways they're working with uh, the Cuban state to advance, you know, uh, the African revolution to advance the process of decolonization, right, which which means eradicating racism, right, because racism, uh, uh, from from our perspective, is a product of colonialism in a lot of ways. And so, you know, the Cuban struggle is is at a different stage, but they're you know part and parcel of our global fight for for Black or African liberation. And so, you know, if if we consider ourselves anti-imperialists or, or pan-Africanists or you know folks interested in global Black solidarity. It's imperative that we call for the end of the blockade because you know that that's that's just a a, a crucial part of of um, you know uh, uh, global black liberation essentially. Definitely, we've got a caller on the line here, Devin. Tell us what's on your mind. Peace, everybody. Hope y'all are doing well. This is Dev Springer. Um, I had the pleasure of being one of the people who helped with the Red Barrio Afro-Descendant to actually organize this delegation. And by the way, I'm currently on mute in a Zoom call at my job right now. So if I have to duck out real quick, I apologize. <laughs> but, um, you know, I just wanted to say it's super, super, super important to acknowledge that this was a group of all Black, 14 Black organizers, specifically from the U.S. South, because many of the groups who go to Cuba and do solidarity trips You know, there's not many fully black organizations and group delegations that take place. And the Cuban people are extremely perceptive. Many of the Cuban revolutionaries who we spoke with said that they feel as though all of the solidarity they get from the U.S. 
is largely from the white left. And so it's really important for us as Black people, anti-imperialists and pan-Africanists in the U.S. to show that Black people in mass here in the U.S. have massive respect for the Cuban revolution and that we support and end the blockade. Um, and, you know, I, one of the ways I encourage everyone who travels to Cuba to spread that message is to just share the effects of the blockade that you can see in real time when you're there. Like Sunday said, we were experiencing power outages several nights while we were there. Restaurants would only have two or three things on the menu. One lady who's a psychiatrist, Norma Giard, she shared a story of her recently having to go have surgery and having to bring her own gloves for the doctors to use in her surgery. And so in the most practical sense possible, the blockade affects every single aspect of Cuban life in every shape, form, and fashion. And it's so important that our Cuban comrades know that Black people here in the U.S. also support and end the blockade because the blockade itself is a tool of racism. So I just wanted to throw that into the chat real quick. And uh, I, thank you for having me on for my question as a caller. I appreciate you, Sean. Appreciate you, Sunday, Shell, and Joe as well. Well, we appreciate you for calling in, uh, Devin, even in the midst of uh, a work call. You know, the, the work of a, a revolutionary is never over. So always great to hear from you, my friend, and appreciate you helping to uh, organize this uh, uh, delegation. And uh, yeah, and you know, Chell, what, what uh, Devin was saying, I think, is really important. And I think we we're touching on this a little earlier about how just sort of saying what is real about uh, uh, what's happening inside Cuba, I think, is so important. Important, And, you know, I've mentioned on the the show before just, you know, about my own experiences. I mean, the two things that that stuck out to me from my time in Cuba is I like, number one, I didn't see a cop for like three days, which is certainly something I'm I'm not, you know, used to living in D.C. It's one of the most heavily policed cities in uh, uh, the country. And of course, you all are in Atlanta where they're actively trying to build like a whole cop city. So, you know, we're we're very used to uh, this feeling of being uh, uh, over policed and surveilled and uh, trapped and harassed and, of course, brutalized and, and, and all these sorts of things. And then also uh, something I noticed was like you just didn't really see a lot of homeless people and things like that. I'm not trying to say that homelessness doesn't exist anywhere in the country. I'm just saying that it was my impression that uh, it wasn't nearly as uh, big of a problem as it is here in the States, I think precisely because of uh, uh, some of the uh, benefits, if you will, of uh, uh, the Cuban revolution. You know what I mean? And so it it can almost feel like trying to describe a a place like Cuba to people in the United States. It almost feels like you are describing like another world or, you know, another dimension or or something like that, or just a place that is completely unlike what we experience here. And of course, even uh, a lot of folks, basic frame is going to be I think stained, frankly, by uh, imperialist propaganda that has been, you know, drilled into us for all of these years as it uh, uh, pertains to Cuba. And I think that it's, you know, pretty clear why it's important from the standpoint of U.S. imperialism to, you know, uh, propagate these uh, half-truths, misinformation and lies about Cuba. Because, you know, if we're told that capitalism is the greatest system there ever was and that Western liberal style uh, democracy is, is the greatest way to govern, well, if we see something on the contrary, well, we might get fancy ideas about trying to bring about a more participatory democracy democracy um, here within this country. You know what I mean? So just like on so many levels, it just feels like there are uh, uh, not only truths to 
bring back, but but lessons to learn about what countries like Cuba and its uh, black folks uh, go through here. And uh, uh, as such, that could be very beneficial to our struggle. I mean, I just I don't think there's a question within that, but I'm just sort of (laughs) flinging all that out there and you can feel free to respond to any of it as you will. Yeah, um, I think I'll like harp a little bit on like their, like how they engage their residents, you know, like we currently live in a state where, you know, we wake up one day and learn a lot of our rights have been revoked and I'm like speaking specifically to Roe v. Wade, right? And so I think one of the coolest things learning about there is like, um, so currently like Cuba is in the midst of trying to implement one of their new family codes. Uh, so the family code is like a part of the constitution that defines like the family unit and like the rights and responsibilities that come with that. Um, so prior to the new mandate on their family code, they, um, had the family defined as like being between a man and a woman. And the new family code is like meant to expand like what a family is. So it opens the room for same sex marriage. It opens the room for like, uh, more rights for women, elders, disabled folks, um, as well as just like giving children more autonomy over themselves. Um, so part of like what the new code is implementing is that parents have a responsibility to their children, not custody over them, which basically just ensures that like children have protections, they have rights, they have dignity, and also just gives dignity to how families are created um, or how they come together. So like under this code, you can also have like a family that um, has more than two parents, uh, you know, just something that gives dignity to how people are actually living their lives. So the process of how that even came to be is just so fundamentally different than how we see legislation come in the States. Uh, so the, the family code started by like having a 2019 mandated review. Um, and they basically like had a temporary working group created by the National Assembly that included like the legal system, civil society, ministries, which continued to iterate on that code and make it better. And then from there, they had special consultations with like mass organizations and institutions like the Cuban National Lawyer Guild, Youth Study Center, uh, various religious groups and whatnot. Um, and so now they're like in the midst of like the society wide popular or no, they finished their society wide popular consultation, which consulted with like more than 6 million Cuban folks. They were in discussion with each other and half of the document was amended to just represent what people were saying they wanted and what they needed. And now they're at their final step where they're creating a national referendum around that. And so I think even just like seeing how their process works and how they're able to engage with people in mass, in large part due to community organizers, black community organizers, um, people who did the work to make sure that people's voices are represented. Um, and so I think for me, it was just like really a wake up call to like, yo, like we're really (laughs) behind the curve here. And it just opened my eyes to like what a true like democratic or just like widespread 
process can look like and how that guarantees rights and benefits for many people. Um, and so one of the reasons why I'm passionate about ending the blockade and why I encourage people to go to Cuba and work with organizers and speak with organizers and see like how they make these things come to life is because, you know, we also black people here deserve a process that affirms the ways that our families are created, um, that gives children rights to decide for themselves what they need, that gives queer folks the ability to have gender affirming surgery and not uh, be criminalized for that. Um, So yeah, I think just like, again, they're living on the other side of our imagination and we really need to end the blockade so that we can have these cultural exchanges uh, with Afro-Cubans there and just like understand how their system works so that we can decide for ourselves like what needs to happen here Um, and also support their movements. Um, A lot of A lot of, uh, like what Joe was saying before about, like, white Cuban people in America who are able to send resources, like, you kind of just see that as a way that's thwarting their processes. Like, a lot of right-wing evangelical churches here sponsor right-wing evangelical churches there. But luckily, you know, the sense of community organizing, the sense of, like, culture is really, really strong, and they were able to move through that. Um, so I think it just is a testament to, you know, their struggle, their processes, and all the things that we can learn as organizers and also just as people here. Uh, yeah. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Tunde Asazawa is here. Joe Mitchell and Chell are here. And uh, Joe, uh, before we went to the break, Shell was saying about uh, the importance of culture in in, in so much of uh, what uh, you all were able to see in Cuba. And I'm wondering what that uh, sort of looked like from your vantage point about how that uh, cultural aspect of things factored into the everyday life and political work of the black communities that you all were able to uh, spend a little time in. I feel like, uh, you know, uh, Afro-Cuban culture in a number of ways is really quite pervasive through a national culture in and of itself. And so I'm just curious, how did you sort of see that playing out in your time there? Yeah, so um, the most prominent aspect of organizing, um, Black organizing in Cuba, was um, their combination of of combining their work with the Afro um, religion, religions in the country. Um, we learned that they're um, fundamentally linked together and they were not able to separate it just because you know, of the amount of Afro-Cubans that practice these religions. They also um, dedicated a lot of their political education to destroying the contradictions and building consciousness surrounding Afro-Cuban religions and spiritual 
spiritual traditions. For instance, our one of our hosts, Kimbo, talked about his experience in Abakua, which is a man-only African spiritual tradition, and how he was very um, much engrossed in the machismo of that religion, and how he had to have a shift in consciousness surrounding that so that he can become more equitable, um, and um, especially in his household with his wife in terms of um, dealing with like household chores and things of that aspect. We also had um, a chance to sit in on a number of cultural performances. One of the performances that we witnessed was an all Roman performance. Um, and during the performance, they were playing the drums and they talked about how the director behind the performance was one of the only few women in Cuba that played the drums. And so this is very significant that all woman crew was um, participating in learning and continuing the tradition of drums as well. Um, there's also a clear emphasis on fighting for queer Black Cubans as well. Um, we saw with the organization Afrodiversio, um, they put on a lot of drag show performances for us. And they do a lot of work outside of drag shows to cultivate community with queer and trans folks there. Um, we also started in a lot of performances on Roomba um, and also just the music that was within the neighborhood. We were able to walk into a random family's home while they were um, participating in um, creating Roomba music together. And they're very hospitable, which shows how um, um, communal the the neighborhoods are, where they you, you can just enter someone's home and enjoy the cultural ceremonies that they have as well. Yeah, definitely. And you know, another thing that I was thinking about, uh, Tunde, is you know we we've been discussing this um, delegation of young black organizers from across the U.S. to um, uh, uh, visit, if you will, uh, these uh, black communities inside Cuba. And I, I can't help but think about how, you know, not that long ago, and it certainly wasn't the first time. I mean, we see attempts from uh, U.S. imperialism to try to to try to weaponize the issue of race in Cuba towards the interest of U.S. imperialism. And this was the, um, I believe it was July 2021, where we saw these uh, protests in Cuba, um, you know, serious uh, conditions, of course, both under the blockade and uh, the coronavirus pandemic. And this was exploited by uh, the U.S. government and mainstream media platforms. And they tried to sort of frame it as Cuba's Black Lives Matter movement, as like black Cubans rising up against, you know, an oppressive uh, white uh, communist government, uh, so on and so forth. I mean, they had black Cuban rappers and all these sorts of things with, with uh, you know, with the involvement, of course, of, you know, the, the National Endowment of Democracy and these other um, uh, uh, regime change uh, NGOs that the U.S. has at its disposal. And so I feel like that that gives a whole other level to the importance of this kind of work and this kind of communication um, between different aspects of the uh, uh, African diaspora diaspora because, you know, that that whole narrative was clearly tailored to um, appeal to black people here in the United States, I think particularly
particularly um, uh, amongst uh, young black people to to incline them against, if you will, the support of uh, the Cuban Revolution. When, uh, as we're laying out this uh, network uh, of uh, black community groups that you all were in contact with um, on some level, do working with and get recognition from the Cuban government. But even something as uh, simple as that or the fact that for so many reasons, the context is so different as we've been laying out. I mean, that can be a hard uh, 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 point to try to get across. I mean, I even remember, I think it was like the official uh, like Black Lives Matter uh, Twitter account that tweeted out um, a statement that was like basically good about uh, the ongoing attacks from uh, uh, to Cuba from the United States. And that got, you know, ruthlessly attacked by uh, liberals and things like that. And so I just feel like it's illustrative on a number of levels about how, you know, imperialism, which itself can't function without white supremacy, will even try to weaponize race towards its own ends. And as such, it's just so important for us to not only sort of uh, study these things for the reality, but to be able to see these things for ourselves if we get the opportunity, you know? Absolutely. Um, I agree. I think, you know, in, in speaking with um, Cuban, uh, Black Cubans, Afro-Cuban people, um, you know, we, we really got to understand um, the role of the revolution in, in, in shifting um, the impacts of, of colonization. And, and like you were saying, uh, um, white supremacy uh, uh, and, and really fighting back against those forces on the island. You know, in, in conversation with uh, folks at, um, from uh, the, uh, you know, Institute of Afro-American Studies, at, you know, the Casa de, uh, de Americas, uh, in particular, Zulaika Gomay and, and, and Roberto Ramos and Elsmerelda uh, Goyantes and others, right? We, we really learned about kind of this, the, the colonial history, right, and how uh, that colonial history, um, you know, pretty much uh, uh, served as the basis for, you know, the racism uh, that we see in, in Cuba today. We understand, right, the, the uh, racism um, and, and, you know, other uh, 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 systems of oppression that currently exist are, are clearly connected to that colonial history and colonialism that became the imperialism of the 20th century, right? And so, you know, Black people... Right, have a long, you know, brutal uh, uh, history uh, in the in Cuba as well as in the U.S. Uh, because of you know things like uh, the transatlantic slave trade, which you know came out of you know the colonial period, right? And so, uh, you know, what we learned from our Cuban comrades was that it's it, you know black people in Cuba that benefited the most from the revolution, right? And and so, you know, when when uh, you know imperialism uses things like racism to, to turn Africans in the U.S. or black people in the, U, in the U.S. away from the support of the Cuban revolution. That's turning them against, you know, the, their, their African uh, or, or black, you know, siblings on, on the island, right? Like, we understand that, you know, we can only defeat racism and white supremacy through eradicating or defeating colonialism, right? And so when groups like the NED or, and others that you named are, are pouring billions of dollars uh, uh, every year into, you know, anti-racist uh, 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 marketing schemes and, you know, diversity and inclusion here in the U.S., we can have faith that the people in Cuba are able to lead their own processes uh, 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 without, you know, outside or U.S. interference to, to, to uh, you know, reconfigure society on uh, uh, along the lines of land, healthcare, and education, right? And, and through the processes that 
the Red Barrial Afro-Descendiente are already leading, right? Those organizations in Cuba are already you know, carrying out to address their internal issues, and they don't need any sort of uh, support or help from us in order to eradicate, you know, those vestiges, those vestiges of, of colonialism, right? And so that, that's why we understand it's so important to stand with that Cuban revolution that, uh, and, and defend that revolution, uh, because that, that's what has really led to the gains uh, that the Cuban people have seen, the Afro-Cubans have seen. And so, you know, we, 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 we um, you know, understand the revolution to be a decolonial project that is, again, fighting against the, these um, um, uh, uh, forces, that, that racism and, and sexism and, you know, homophobia and things like that. And so, you know, because the revolution is so key to defend, we understand it's, it's so important for us uh, as, you know, folks outside of Cuba to really focus on ending the blockade. As, you know, our Cuban comrades spoke about that being, you know, a real impediment to, you know, this, this struggle against racism. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, we, we think that, you know, it, it, it's important for uh, uh, us to understand that, you know, uh, racial discrimination and bias in, in areas like housing or, or employment or, or, you know, uh, the, the justice system in Cuba are, are, are you know, uh, worsened through by the blockade. Right. And, and so, you know, we, we think that, you know, as, as we, uh, um, you know, engage in these exchanges with folks on the island, as we learn from our Cuban comrades, we can really see the process and, and what it looks like to, to try to eradicate these, these structures, these systems, um, like, like racism uh, uh, on a material, in a material way uh, uh, and, and see what it's like to, to work with, you know, uh, the broader society and, and work through a revolution to, to continue to, to strengthen the position of the most marginalized in, in society. And so, you know, uh, I think, you know, for any anyone who claims to be anti-imperialist, uh, you know, it, it, it's important for us to focus specifically on, you know, the, the blockade that relates to Cuba and, and, and really just to learn and exchange and go on trips like this and join organizations that, you know, are also anti-imperialist and are also opposing the blockade uh, so that we can, you know, contribute to, to these forces as well and not be swayed by, you know, uh, the U.S. empire and, and, and uh, you know, it's, is allies. So yeah, I, I think that that's an important question uh, as we as we think about you know what it means to think about racism or, or you know anti-blackness in a place like Cuba. Definitely. And uh, Shell, in our last few minutes here, I'm just uh, wondering if there was one thing out of everything that you were able to see and do in your time in Cuba, if there was one takeaway that you would really want to stress to folks here in uh, the U.S. So what would that be in your mind? For me, it would be like, def, 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 advocate for ending the blockade. Um, and like, if you are going to go visit Cuba, which I think that you should, make sure you're bringing donations, donations, donations. Um, you know, like we shouldn't be going without offering good donations to bring our medical supplies, so gloves, uh, medicines, uh, black hair care products, uh, kitchen supplies, stuff like that. Um, there definitely needs to continue to be a resource exchange between us here and them there. Um, and we're going to continue to learn from them. So, yeah, in the blockade, take donations if you're going to go. Absolutely. Uh, Joe, same question. Yeah, as we all talked a little bit about, um, as Black people in the United States, we are under a similar intentional and violent blockade um, that 
keep black people in positions that force them into submission to the racist capitalist state. Um, we lack access to hospitals, have higher unemployment, and as we see now in Jackson, Mississippi, we don't have access to clean water. We live in food deserts. Um, so we understand as Black Americans how violent um, blockades can be, which just further cemented my understanding of the importance of internationalism and standing with the Black Cubans. Um, they support the struggle of Black Americans here. We saw strong support for um, our leaders like Martin Luther King and political prisoners like Abu Jamal. So we need to stand with the Cubans as they fight for their liberation from the blockade and imperialism as a whole. And we can do that by joining, joining like Sunday said, um, organizations that focus on ending imperialism, focus on ending the blockade in Cuba, and also um, ending um, colonialism that we face here in the United States and neocolonialism abroad. Absolutely. Ending the criminal unilateral blockade against Cuba is a black liberation every bit as much as it is a, a, a core part of anti-imperialist struggle. And I'm so glad that uh, we're able to have delegations like this of young folks who can go to Cuba, see what it is and report back, particularly as we see how to weave this in with our broader struggle from liberation against capitalism and imperialism right here. But we're going to leave it there for today. Day here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Tunde Osazua, Joe Mitchell, and Shell, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all new episode. So, as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.